0: And Heavenly Father, we do just come to you this morning uh, eager to hear from you. We are tired, we are uh, fragmented, we desperately need a word from our Father. We thank you this morning that the good news of Jesus is that in Christ you see us, you know us, you love us, you're eager to speak and to encourage and to give gifts to us this morning, most importantly the gift of your own presence and power and purposes in our lives. And so we want to receive with open hands what you have for us this morning. Just teach us what it means to be resilient disciples in the midst of the hardships of life. And we to pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a big week for uh, the Shields family. Uh, Tuesday, my oldest turns 16, uh, so he's in the service. I'm not going to point him out. Uh, I'm trying not to embarrass him, but big deal. We have a son who's uh, finally driving, which I'm actually really excited about. Uh, he gets to be uh, an Uber for us uh, next year as we have another one going into high school. Uh, I'm I'm actually thrilled and excited for him. Uh, It's the Derby, so I'm a Kentuckian, so it's a big weekend for us. Went home and got to celebrate uh, Derby yesterday with family. Um, I know the Indy half was here. Some of you guys uh, uh, ran that. Uh, My wife did that the first year she was here. So I will not be offended at all if some of you just fall asleep this morning. Uh, I know that you're probably exhausted from that. Uh, but most importantly, one of the most impactful uh, experiences I had this week, and my wife and I had the opportunity on Wednesday to go on a couple of field trips with our kids. Uh, so I went to Chicago on Wednesday. My wife went to Cincinnati. Uh, she got the opportunity to go. So our school, where our children go uh, in their middle school, is built on uh, kind of uh, one of the pillars of our community is, is reconciliation, racial reconciliation and justice. And so uh, as part of the curriculum, we traveled to, Emily went to the National Underground uh, Railroad Freedom Museum, and then I went to, on Wednesday in Chicago, to the Du Sable Museum. And uh, it's the DuSable Museum of African American History, the oldest independent African American uh, history museum in the country. Uh, as many of you know, Jean-Baptiste uh, DuSable was one of the first non-Caucasian permanent residents of Chicago, uh, Haitian-born, and so it's kind of named in his honor. But it was a really, uh, if you've ever been like that, and again, to go uh, with our friends, who many of whom are uh, African-American, it is a profoundly impactful experience, transformational experience. Um, to go into that space is an emotional uh, journey. It, it's a spiritual encounter. Um, it, it literally, to walk through uh, the history and to walk through and just to see it, um, it, it, it kind of makes you sick to your stomach, and at the same time, it's super inspirational, all, all kind of happening at the same time. It's traumatizing, right? If you're, uh, many of my friends, first time been into the museum, uh, it can be really, really heavy, and so there's tears and, and lots of uh, conversations happening on the bus ride up and back with the parents, and it, it really got me, so one of the exhibits they had there, uh, some of you may have heard of a, a man named Aquano. Aquano uh, was, there was a huge exhibit in the Dusalba Museum uh, about him. And uh, he was born in eastern Nigeria in Igboland in 1745. He was captured by African slave traders at the age of 11. He was sold to European slave traders, sent on a slave ship through the Middle Passage to the Caribbean. And uh, he wrote what, probably one of the first and the most uh, profound, it became kind of the first of a whole literary movement known as Slave Narratives. And he published his memoir called The Interesting Narrative. And in the interesting narrative, he describes the harrowing and violent and brutal treatment of slaves on slave ships, probably more detail, more length than any other uh, slave narrative that we have today. He eventually would escape to England. He converted to Christianity and, uh, and was baptized into the Church of England and, uh, and purchased his freedom. And then eventually, he would go on to work vigorously as an abolitionist who was working with the resources of his Christian faith Preaching the good news of Jesus really with his life in both word and deed, and this is the interesting thing: to the very people in England, many of whom were uh, enslavers, and it's it's just fascinating and it's it's inspiring on so many levels to think about somebody who has the that level of resilience. And, and there's hundreds of these stories in in the museums. This is just one, but he wrote this in a, in his memoir, and it and it's. It's just amazing. He says, Now every leading providential circumstance that happened to me from the day I was taken from my parents to that hour was then in my view, as if it had but just then occurred. I was sensible of the invisible hand of God, which guided and protected me when in truth I knew it not. Still, the Lord pursued me. I mean, what a profound statement from somebody who had endured that kind of infliction and abuse I mean, you can't help but like weep when you listen to that and also be inspired and transformed. And and it really got me thinking about like this is is an inheritance. This is like a legacy that we have from our African-American brothers and sisters living in this country for hundreds of years. It's like this inheritance that we've neglected oftentimes in the contemporary church that's been passed down through generations of faithful Christians. It's why it's so important that we do the work of reconciliation as a church, right? Because we are disconnected from this massive legacy that's been handed down, and yet we're often looking away or looking in another direction, and we have this beautiful legacy that's been passed down to us. As we have faithful Christians who've endured hardship in the name of Jesus, we don't have to go overseas to find those traditions. They're right here among us. And so that's what I want to look at today is, like, how did... Those African American Christians, how did they in the book of Acts, because a lot of this is drawn from scripture, right? That's where the power for a lot of the civil rights movement came from. If you listen and read to uh, a lot of the pioneers, how did they cultivate that kind of resilience? How do we cultivate that kind of resilience in the midst of hardship? And I thought this is particularly appropriate. We have a knack at SOMA for preaching weird messages on Mother's and Father's Day because we're just kind of going through the Bible, and that has not always served us well. Uh, but uh, I thought, man, what a great, like if there were a bumper sticker for motherhood, it is Paul's thing here in verse 22, through many hardships you will enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> like that is something like as a mother, like I would just frame that, get somebody to craft you some wood, like put it up in your leg, through many hardships Uh, you enter the kingdom of God. And so I wanna just talk about that because I I think it's a really important message for us to grab onto, especially in this cultural moment. So let me try to bring you up to speed on everything that happened. It's two chapters of narrative, and I just wanna focus on those last eight verses. But I wanna throw up this map and just give you a little bit of context of where we are uh, in the book of Acts. So last week, um, we see here, um, we have that map of the the, uh, Mediterranean there. We see here last week, over to the right, where that uh, blue arrow starts, Antioch, the Holy Spirit calls Paul and Barnabas, sends them out on mission. They start in Cyprus, uh, which is Barnabas's uh, hometown, home island. They move from Cyprus up to Perga, and then to Antioch and Pisidia, and then east to Iconium, Lystra, Derby. That's all basically southern Turkey right now, kind of in our modern world. And they basically go and they preach the good news of Jesus. And we'll come back to these sermons and look at these in more detail later. But the main thing that happens here is there's just a shift in momentum. There's a, there's a response initially, and then the Jews kind of stir up this opposition to Paul. They turn the city uh, elites against Paul and Barnabas. They insult them. They harass them. Eventually, Paul gets stoned uh, there's just a lot of hardship. I mean, that's basically what you see. What Paul is saying to them is what they've just seen happen for uh, you know, weeks and months as they've traveled around to these different areas preaching the good news of Jesus. And so it ends here as they come back through, and this is what's amazing to me. Paul, after recovering from being stoned, gets up, goes back through the very cities where he was just harassed and oppressed and stoned, and he preaches the gospel, and he's encouraging these very people who violently attacked him, he starts a house church and starts discipling them. Think about that for a second. starts discipling them. And and this is the thing that he imparts to this young church before he eventually goes and gets killed. It says, kind of in summarizing this, it says they were strengthening, it's literally the souls of the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith, by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This is the ministry of Paul and Barnabas really for the rest of the book of Acts in these three missionary journeys. You'll see this phrase. It's actually like a thing. It's kind of a refrain. Strengthening and encouraging. Strengthening and encouraging. It comes up four or five times in the next couple of chapters. And, and the reason was, again, you have a young congregation, new to the faith, and Paul is concerned that they are vulnerable as you would think, like, the fear, the anxiety, right, the, 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 the concern they have is that as they witness these hardships, they're going to fall away, they're gonna leave the faith. They see all this violence, they see all of this persecution, they see all of this social marginalization, and they're concerned for their spiritual and emotional health. And so they have this message. So I just want to unpack this just real quickly and make sure we understand what Paul's saying and not saying, and I want to apply it to our own uh, time here. So two things that we need to see here. One uh, in this text is that Paul says, hardship is necessary, right? Hardship is necessary. Literally, it is necessary is one Greek word. It's day, right? It's a word that Jesus uses a lot in the gospels. Hardship Is necessary. Hardship is normal for disciples of Jesus. Now, this word hardship is a really significant word. It's a it's a specific word that's used for a specific kind of hardship or suffering. It's the Greek word flipsis. It's a word that we studied. If you remember in the book of Revelation, it's one of the first things that comes up in the book of Revelation when John has a vision from God. He says, You are going to experience flipsis. Right? So flipsis is a word that can mean affliction, it can mean oppression. It can mean this kind of crushing and overwhelming pressure. Now, here's the thing. Flipsis is more than just kind of suffering that's caused by an individual person's sin. So, like, you do something stupid, there's the law of cause and effect, and then something bad happens. That's not flipsis, okay? Um, it's also not necessarily um, just suffering in a generalized sense. Like, we live in an evil and broken world, and we experience suffering. Phlipsis is a very specific word that Jesus uses over and over and over again. There's 45 references to this, but Paul is actually the one that uses the most. I think 24 of the 25 uh, ones that we see here are used by Paul to talk about kind of the, the moment in which they live. And in the New Testament, it's a reference to the clash, the collision that happens when the kingdom of God in Jesus breaks into the world and comes up against the kingdom of darkness all the principalities and powers and the idols and the injustices of the kingdom of darkness. When the way of Jesus comes up against that, there is a collision of values, a collision of practices, a collision, a collision of uh, ways of life and ways of being in the world. And, and, and so, there's like multiple ways that we can live as human beings. And the way of Jesus is one of those. That's why in the Book of Acts, it's it's called the way. The earliest disciples were not necessarily mostly called Christians although you see that once in the book of Acts, they're called the way. And the way of Jesus was a way of life, right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, right? So it's it's a way of life. And it comes up against, really, you could probably categorize them in two alternative ways of life that Jesus is confronting in his day. One, you might call the way of secularism, right? This is the way of Rome. This is the way of Babylon. This is the way of violence and coercion and domination, the worldly powers that the Bible talks about. But there's another way that we don't often think about and we don't see, uh, but it's highlighted just as much. It's the way of religion. Like notice here where the persecution comes from, not from Caesar, not from pagans. It comes from the religious community. There's a, there's a way of religion kind of really highlighted, if you read Matthew 23, Jesus uh, kind of headlines that with the way of the Pharisees, right? The way of the Jewish elites, they were compromised disciples. This is the other way. And when the way of Jesus comes up and the kingdom of God breaks into this present darkness, these different ways get exposed and there's a clashing of values and convictions and it, and it provokes resistance, right? It provokes hostility and violence as it still does today when the way of Jesus comes up against the way of secularism and comes up against the way of a kind of post-Jesus, post-Christian religious movement. If we might wanna call it that. So the last thing you need to know about flipsis is uh, that there's a spectrum of severity, right? So we read this, and we're like, persecution, um, okay, that's not really where we live in America exactly, so how does this, what does this say to our moment? Uh, Flipsis is a spectrum, and it ranges from what we see here in Acts 13 and 14, the severe kind of persecution and the threat of death, which, again, is a reality for the majority of Christians around the world right? We got to remember that. That is most Christians, there's no such thing as the persecuted church. There's just the church that is always enduring and experiencing persecution, right? Of which we are a part. But it goes from that on this extreme to like everything from natural disasters like plagues and pestilence to more ordinary everyday struggles like harassment, slander, exclusion, alienation, and marginalization from families. like This is like when you lose business opportunities, right? When you lose neighbors, you lose friends. You can even get excluded from maybe the church you grew up in as a child and maybe dismiss you as some crazy whatever. Um, That's all kind of covered under flipsis. Now, this would not have surprised Paul that he was experiencing uh, this kind of opposition and resistance, right? Um, God told Ananias when Paul comes to Christ, if you remember back in chapter 9, he warned him this was going to happen. And so Paul probably knew this. I assume Ananias told him this. He says uh, in Acts chapter 9, the Lord said to Ananias, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, to kings, and to the Israelites. And he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And again, this isn't Just something that God made up for uh, Paul. This is what Jesus promised all of his disciples. If you go back to Matthew chapter 24, one of the last things that Jesus says to his disciples when they're asking him about when uh, the world's going to come to an end, when is the kingdom going to come in its fullness, Jesus has this. He says, then they will hand you over for persecution. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because... Of my name, Many will take offense, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. Likewise, in John 15, Jesus says, remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and you are a little Christ, they're going to also persecute you. And then in 2 Timothy 3, and Paul writes to his mentee uh, out of his own experiences and actually reflecting on this very, these very events in Acts chapter 14, 13 and 14, he says this to Timothy, what persecutions I endured at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. And here's, here's, here's the promise. In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, all those who want to attempt to live the way of Jesus will be persecuted. What Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, what he's telling these disciples, is that this has to be the mindset that we live with as Christians, as disciples. Faithfulness to Jesus will more often than not require learning to embrace and learning to thrive in the face of intense resistance and hostility and violence. And we'll have to learn to take that violence as the body of Christ collectively and individually. This is not just about individuals, this is about the body of Christ globally, right? We have to learn to absorb that violence in our bodies and in a sense become a graveyard of violence. We take that into our bodies, we transform that in the way of Jesus so that we don't then return that violence in kind. The body of Christ is the place where violence goes to be snuffed out. In the kingdom of God. And for us, I think that is going to require a massive reframing of how we think about our life, particularly in the West, right? Particularly as Americans. American Christians tend to see hardship, tend to see flipsis as optional or occasional. But Jesus says, and Paul says, we actually should see it as necessary and normal, matter of fact, we ought to be asking the question, if we're not experiencing that kind of hardship in the name of Jesus, where have we compromised? Because Jesus always creates a sort of friction wherever he goes. He says, I've come to bring the sword. I divide families, right? I divide communities. To follow my way is to say no, right? Like a yes is a thousand renunciations to all of these no's over here, right? And so when we think about our cultural moment, and we think, what, like, what is going on, right? Like we're experiencing this, the, the cultural dynamics right now are such that things feel like they've shifted rapidly. Like, and we just ask this question, why have things gotten so crazy, right? Like you're on social media or just like politically or whatever. And I hear people say, and I, I will say to myself sometimes, like man, the last six years or the last two years have been crazy and hard. I can't wait to get back to what? Normal. And normal, we assume, is the absence of crazy, right? The absence of chaos. But what does Jesus say? What if, what if normal is actually chaos? What if normal is actually crazy? What if we're not going back? What if that was an illusion shared by a very small slice of the world's population? <laughs> Some pastors in this reason, I was like, oh, God, no, please. He said, what if we've crossed a threshold, and what we're experiencing now is the easiest it will ever be again to live as a Christian in the world? Just like, please, no. But I think part of the reason why this is so hard for us is because we were not prepared for this reality. We had a different mentality. We've had a different mentality, right? Like ever since I don't know, it's like World War post World War II. If it's something there, if it's a generational thing, but like post World War II, our parents' generation, my parents' generation, there was so much progress and prosperity in different ways—financial, scientific, technological—and I think it distorted our vision of reality right? And so, American Christians, I think in particular, have been surprised and caught off guard with the shift in cultural momentum and the impact that it's having on the community of faith, the division we're experiencing, the deconstruction that we're seeing, uh, the decline of Christianity, the rise of the nuns, right? Like, these are all things that are catching people off guard. And I wonder if it's because our mindset has been more shaped by um, American culture than by the culture of the way of Jesus, Like, some of the values that we kind of just imbibe as Americans, and again, I'm not saying it's all bad, but we have to be aware that we're being formed and shaped. We're always being discipled. The question is, who is discipling us, right? We're always being discipled. Um, If there was a way that we, I could kind of summarize this through the language of Paul. Paul says, through many hardships, we enter the kingdom of God. The American Christian mantra, maybe, for some segments of the church has been, through much prosperity, much safety, and much progress, you will enter the kingdom, That's not our reality, though. That's not the reality that Jesus lays out. That's not the reality of our cultural moment, right? Like, we're progressing in some ways, right? Like, technologically, you know, you could, you could argue financially in different ways. But, like, we're regressing in all the ways that kind of matter, like spiritually, emotionally. Lots of people have pointed this out. We're experiencing a kind of cultural regression where chaos is the norm. And everybody's like, hey, man, I don't think this is getting better anytime soon, so what do we do? One of the big challenges um, that, we, that I see to this kind of mentality here is something that, um, there was a book recently uh, released by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. He wrote the book, The Righteous Mind, and he just wrote a new book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And in this book he talks about, he's a professor at NYU, he's a social psychologist, and he said he started noticing in 2012, Generation Z, when they came of age and they came to college campus, the dynamics of campus life began to shift And all of a sudden there was this intensity and there was this anxiety that he said, in all my years of teaching as a professor, all the professors were like totally caught off guard by this. And so he kind of explores this in the book. And one of the things he talks about there in his book is this this culture of what he calls safetyism, safetyism. He says, safetyism refers to a culture or belief system in which safety has become a sacred value which means that people become unwilling to make trade-offs demanded by other practical and moral concerns. Safety trumps everything else, no matter how unlikely or trivial the potential danger. Safetyism is the cult of safety, an obsession with eliminating threats, both real and imagined, to the point at which people become unwilling to make reasonable trade-offs demanded by, I already said that. Safetyism deprives young people of the experiences that their anti-fragile minds need, thereby making them more fragile more anxious, and more prone to seeing themselves as victims. Now, hear me, hear me. There is an important conversation to be had about safety. We are a generation that has experienced trauma, right? And we know more about trauma, and we need to be talking about safety. But he's saying when you take that to the extreme and you elevate safety, and that becomes the dominant value, when you elevate things like cultural progress and prosperity and safety, you will never live into the kind of risk that is necessary and normal in the kingdom of God. And I'm not saying we run to it. I'm not saying we glamorize it. We met look, any of you that have experienced involuntary, unsafe environments, there is no glory in that. But I am saying that if we're not prepared to accept it, if we're not prepared to step into it, we're gonna miss the way of Jesus. Because the second thing that he teaches in this little short little passage is that not only is hardship necessary, but hardship is a crucible for transformation. Hardship is a crucible for transformation. Notice he says it's necessary to go through hardship to enter the kingdom of God. You can't go around it. You can't go over it. You can't dig underneath it. You can't buy your way out of it. You can't educate yourself beyond it. You must go through hardship to enter the kingdom of God. Hardship, and this is the second thing, so we need to reframe our mentality. Secondly, we have to find our way through hardship without becoming hardened by it. See, hardship in the biblical narrative is a portal. It's like a crucible that transforms us, and it could transform us for good or for bad, risk and sacrifice and suffering, have the potential to make us more like Jesus. He said so, right? And, and more prepared for missional opportunities in the world, more resilient to take them on. But it can also devastate our faith and how many of us have walked through hardship and we become bitter, we become cynical, we, we depersonalize other people, we just, we just lose perspective and lose heart. And those are the two options when we're faced with real hardship right? There's, there's, there's a possibility and there's a peril. The possibility, it, th- and this isn't just something that like the Bible points out, like actually lots of psychology and sociology has pointed this out too. Uh, there's a phenomenon known as post-traumatic growth. Have you ever heard of that? Post-traumatic stress syndrome. Post-traumatic growth is actually something they're studying as well, that it's adversity oftentimes that leads us to transformation. As a matter of fact, adversity is necessary for transformation. This is not Christians. This is just in the psychological literature. Nassim Taleb wrote about this in his book, *Antifragile* a couple of years ago. He says the most important systems in life and society require stressors, require challenges to learn, to adapt, and to grow. If not, they become rigid, weak, and inefficient. He used the example of your immune system. If your immune system is not exposed to viruses, you become weakened in your immune system, right? They've studied this all over the world. Um, like actually, the, like the the, the microbes in your gut, if you don't develop those, you get weaker, right? Same thing with parenting, right? Like he applies this to parenting. How many of us are overprotecting our kids out of a concern for safety and we, we create these little bubbles for them? And he said, that's actually really bad. Kids are inherently anti fragile, they need stressors and challenges to push them and help them grow. And he says, it's actually, in his opinion, one of the reasons why we're seeing so much anxiety amongst our younger generation and mental health issues because of what they're experiencing on social media. and. A certain kind of bubble created by, in large part, overprotective parents. Guilty. But a crucible is that kind of alchemy that creates the possibility for transformation. If you watch uh, the show Mandalorian, anybody, any Mandalorian fans in here, this is the way. Um, we have a picture up here, the next one you see, that this Bezgar gets, it gets uh, thrown through the crucible, right? So the Mandalorian goes around the universe, around the galaxy, and he finds this Bezgar, and he brings it back to the Queen Mother, and she hammers it and shapes it and, and transforms it, right, into something that can be stronger and useful as armor uh, or a weapon. And that's what hardship does. Hardship has the potential to bring us through a crucible, right? The heat of adversity, the heat of hardship puts us under stress and duress, but it's in that heat as we're hammered and shaped in the sovereignty and the providence of God, he's working on us and working in us, and he's using those things, not that God causes all of those things, but he's using those things in our lives to make us resilient, right? Resilient on the other side, that kind of armor is strong, but it's flexible. Right? If it's too hard, it gets rigid, it gets brittle, it can break. If it's too soft, it obviously it's not going to be useful. But there's that, that midpoint where just with the right amount of heat and the right kind of shaping, it becomes strong and flexible. That is resilience. That's what we want. Resilience, it's been said, is persistence in the face of resistance. Persistence in the face of resistance. And we see that, and it's so inspiring to see this in Paul, right? Like, I just think, man, they're, they're targeted, they're harassed, they're stoned. They are truly oppressed, <laughs> then they go back to preach the gospel to the very people who oppress them. It was like, if Paul were alive today, or like, Paul, like, if this happened in the church today, would we be likely to go and preach the gospel and start a house church with the people that oppress us politically or ideologically or whatever? Or would we be more likely to organize a social media boycott or a political protest? I don't know. But that's Resilience. James 1 says that's what happens in hardship. When you're tested, he says, consider it mega joy whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance is the biblical word for resilience. Endurance, perseverance, resilience, all of one cloth. Your endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature, may be whole, complete, lacking nothing. That's the possibility of hardship but there's a peril right there's a temptation when we're in the crucible two big temptations that we have to also pay attention to during times of hardship it's what one author calls a failure of nerve and a failure of heart right todd bolsinger in his book on christian leadership says it like this failure of nerve is caving to the pressure of the anxiety of the group to return to the status quo. There's so much anxiety swirling around us, we just get off mission and we return back to what we know out of fear of the pressure of the crowd. It's a loss of courage to further the mission. Some of us will be tempted to lose our nerve. Others of us will be tempted to fail, to experience a failure of heart. Failure of heart, you're still doing the mission, but you've lost your love. That's what Jesus said, right? Like when you're handed over, you're gonna be tempted to let your love grow cold. Doing the right things, but your heart is not in it. You don't love people. Failure of heart, he says, is the emotional cutoff that occurs when the leader's discouragement leads them to psychologically abandon their people and the charge they've been given. Failure of heart, failure of nerve. And we see this, right, throughout the Bible. I'll just give you some examples. We see failure of nerve all over the place, right? Paul says at one point, Uh, in another one of his letters, everyone in Asia, this area where he's been ministering, everybody abandoned me. Everybody left the mission. In this story, John Mark abandons Paul, right? They'll get reconciled later, but he has a failure of nerve. We see that in Peter, right? When Peter denies Jesus three times, the shift in momentum, all of a sudden he goes from being popular to being hated, and, and and he bails. We see that in Aaron with all the uncertainty and the anxiety when Moses is up on the mountain, and he gets anxious because he doesn't know where Moses went, and that anxiety and all the pressure around him of the people, he, he, you know, it's just like, well, I don't know what happened. This thing popped out, of the golden calf popped out of the fire. No, like, you crafted that thing. It didn't just pop up out of nowhere. In your anxiety, though, we can lose our nerve in the face of the crowd. And then Elijah, of course, when powerful people, I mean, think about Jezebel, that constant pressure coming from above, the people with power pressing down. He flees To the desert and lost his nerve. We see the same thing a failure of heart, people's love growing cold. We see that in Judas in Acts chapter 1, where he was disappointed that Jesus wasn't what he thought he would be for him. He didn't meet his expectations and he leaves. He actually commits suicide. Demas abandons Paul, right? And Paul says he did it because he loved the world too much, right? We lose heart when we start to love the wrong things in the wrong proportion or the right things in the wrong proportion. Moses grew bitter against the Israelites. He struck the rock. He lost heart. Remember he kind of like shakes his fist at God. He's like, "These people that you gave me, they're so annoying," right? And he just he gets bitter and cynical towards the people he's supposed to serve, and God judges him and he doesn't go to the promised land. He dies right on that mountain outside the promised land. So the question is, we see this all over the place. We see the temptations. I just want to close with like, how do we cultivate this kind of resilience? How do we cultivate this kind of resilience? It's not automatic. Like, this isn't magic. Like, Paul and Barnabas, the thing we need to see, we read these stories, and our temptation is to, like, mythologize Paul and Barnabas, right? Like, they were just different. They were special. They were apostles. But we forget that Paul and Barnabas had to go through their own crucibles, right? And if you read the larger narrative of Paul's letters and you step back for a second, you see that this is not about magic. This is about formation, This is not about psychological tricks and hacks, right? Life hacks will not get you here, right? Education's not gonna get you here. Talent's not gonna get you here. This is not a human endeavor, right? This is deep, deep formation that God has to do in us. And so I want us just to quickly look at how that formation happened. I wanna give you just some strokes of how this happened in Paul and Barnabas' life. The thing that Paul models and embodies and then teaches them really comes down to relationship. We will only take the kind of risks and sacrifice that God calls us to in the context and under the canopy of loving relationships. His relationship with God, basically Paul's advice and Paul's modeling comes down to two things. Be deep in your relationship with God and be thick In authentic relationships with other people, it's only there that you're going to find the resources, right? And this is where Christianity is different, right? Like I've been reading uh, Ryan Holiday's books. Some of you guys maybe read Ryan Holiday. He's a big, he's kind of reviving stoicism. And the basic, and again, there's some really helpful things. His book's called The Obstacle is the Way. It's one of the top-selling books for men Uh, in the world, right? An obstacle in the way basically says look inward, right? Like develop a deep self-confidence in yourself. You have the resources to be gritty and and to, to flip the perspective and all this kind of stuff. That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus doesn't say look inside yourself to become resilient. The way of Jesus says look out and look up and then look in. We need relationships. And that's why Paul strengthens them by encouraging them. What does he say? Continue in the faith. That word faith is the same word for trust. Continue in trust. He encourages them to trust in God. Then he appoints a a relational community around him to oversee support and help for them. He gives them pastors. The community rallies around Paul and Barnabas, and then it rallies, they rally around each other. And then what's the last thing Paul does? He entrusts them, notice here, in, uh, somewhere here in verses 20, uh, 1 to 28, he entrusts them to the God in whom they believed. And then he returns back to their community of support, him and Paul and Barnabas, go back to Antioch where they received support and encouragement and they stayed there for some time. Relationship with God, relationship with other people. Okay, but what does that like practically look like? Just three quick things. One, we see that Paul, specifically Paul, his identity and his calling is grounded in God, okay? He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's held by an authentic community. His identity and calling are grounded in God. He's filled with the Spirit, and he's held in authentic community. Paul's identity and his sense of call are grounded in God. He's what psychologists would call well-differentiated, right? Differentiation is the ability to have a solid sense of self that doesn't depend on the opinions of other people around you, right? Differentiation is the capacity to define yourself apart from the pressures, of those around you. And that's exactly what we see. If you want to read a a story about Paul's kind of inner journey through all of this and how he pastors the church through this, read the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is Paul's autobiography about how he endured these sufferings. This is a book that James, Pastor James and I, have come back to time and time again during COVID and all of the hardships of being uh, in ministry over these past couple years. We keep coming back to 2 Corinthians because Paul opens up his life to us, and he tells us how he survived these sufferings and how he became resilient through hardship. And then out of this hardship, he writes as a pastor to a young church, experiencing their own flipsis. So remember Paul's journey. He becomes a Christian. Galatians 1 says he then goes to the desert for three years. What was Paul doing in the desert for three years? I don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't say, but we can use sanctified imagination. When people in the Bible go into the desert, the desert is a place of revelation. The desert is a place of transformation. Jesus goes into the wilderness after hearing the voice of his father, which formed his identity. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He has an identity that comes from above, not from below. Then he goes out into the desert. What do you think he's doing with all that free time on his hands? Probably immersing himself in that reality that I am a beloved son in whom the father is well pleased. And then he faces demonic temptation, and he speaks that identity over and against Satan. Satan. So we can imagine Paul's probably doing something similar because when he comes back, listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God is the one who called me. He's called me to be his son. He's called me to be his disciple. He's called me to be his apostle. His will is what defines my reality, not what's happening around me in Iconium and Lystra and Derby and Perga. For we don't want you to be unaware, he continues, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were so overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life. Indeed, we personally had a death sentence within ourselves. Why, Paul says. As I reflect on this, as I think about this, as I pray on this with God, here's what God has showed me, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul says, that is my confidence, I am in Jesus and Jesus was raised from the dead and the new heavens and the new earth are breaking in in Jesus. So if I am in Jesus and Jesus is raised from the dead, nobody can ultimately harm me, Paul says. That's the reality that Paul lives in. He doesn't say, close your eyes, click your heels and say, there's no place like home, no place like home. He, he doesn't say, look inside yourself and power up or flip the you know, bad into the good. He says, no, if it's not for the reality of Jesus risen from the dead, and if that doesn't ground my sense of self in the world, I've got nothing, Paul says. So we have to do that work. We have to do, you and I have to do that deep identity work every single day. We wake up feeling like orphans. We wake up feeling abandoned, feeling rejected, feeling misunderstood, feeling alone. That is exactly what the enemy wants because when he isolates us, then he can have his way with us. And what we need to do is literally, I mean, like, I have just... Made it a practice in my life over the last couple of years, something God's been doing in my own life, to wake up every morning and try to spend a couple of minutes in silence and just rehearsing the reality that Paul brings us into in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm in Christ. In Christ, I'm forgiven. In Christ, all the blessings in the heavenly places have been given to me. I have an inheritance in Christ. I am chosen, I am loved, I have redemption in the blood of Jesus, all of that belongs to me, not because I'm awesome, as a matter of fact, I know who I am, I know that's not me, but that's who I'm becoming in Christ. And so where am I not living out of that identity and that strong sense of self? I want to hear the Father's voice to me. I mean, as you know, I've said this, it's not been easy to be a pastor over the last couple of years. All my friends, like a lot of my friends getting out of ministry, people are just so discouraged. I mean, I've sat in pastor meeting after pastor meeting with grown men just weeping. And I was with a group of friends recently, and we were sitting around a fire, and I was just sharing some of my heart and my struggles. And I said, man, I I don't know where I get the resources to continue doing X, Y, or Z. I was just talking about something where I was struggling. One of my friends just, he looked at me, and he just said, hey, I'm just curious. What is it that you need to hear the Lord say to you, that would empower you to be able to continue to move forward. You know what I mean? And, and, And these men just gathered around me, and they began to speak those words into my life, hands laid on me, praying over me. And it was such a profound experience of just being reminded that God is present to me, that God is with me, he is for me. Everything I have, everything I am, is in him. That's different than, like, try harder. (laughs) That's different than, like, don't worry, it's going to get better. No, it's not. (laughs) It's not getting better until Jesus comes back, right? Like, we have to live in this reality, so we better have an identity and a sense of call that's rooted in something deeper than what's happening around us, or even the inner voices that are not Jesus's voices speaking to us. Second thing, quickly, we better be filled with the Spirit. What you read about Paul and Barnabas, more than anything else, is they are men full of the Spirit. This word encouragement that's used, strengthening and encouraging, is the word perikaleo. Steve talked about this a couple weeks ago. That's the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit. They were literally strengthening by Holy Spiriting the community, taking what was happening in them and just sharing it with this young church, sharing the gift of the Spirit that Jesus promised would be their advocate, would be their ally, would be the one to give them God's love. They were immersed in the Spirit. And and friends, let me tell you, in the future of the church, our our future as a church, as a community, we desperately need the Spirit to speak God's love into our hearts. That is the Spirit's job description. Take what belongs to God, give it to His people, internalize it in them. We need God's love to transform us into the kind of people who can endure hardship, because otherwise we will quit. We won't make it. Talent's not going to be enough, guys. Charisma is not going to be enough. Your LinkedIn profile, meaningless in this kind of reality, right? Like all of your education, all of your wealth, your political influence, your tech savvy, not enough. The future church is a spirit-empowered church, spirit-filled church. That's my prayers every morning. It, it, It really comes out of Romans 5 and Ephesians 3. Romans 5 says, affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. That's what we need in this moment, hope more than anything else. And how does that come? Because God's love has been poured out, shed abroad is the old language in our hearts. God has generously given us a spirit who gives us the love of Jesus as a gift. And that's available to us every day. Ephesians three, again, Paul writing probably out of his own experience. One of my favorite prayers, Paul says, what I want for you more than anything else It's not that you just make more money, not that you'd have more influence or more power, not that you have more education. What does he say? My prayer for you is that God may grant you the father of all mercies, the father, your father would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power inside, in your inner man, in your soul, through his spirit, so that the Messiah would dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being firmly rooted and established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Like how different would your week be this week if you just opened up this prayer every morning and you just sat with this prayer and you just say, Holy Spirit, would you do this work inside of me? Help me. Help me to experience this deep kind of love. Because I know this week's probably gonna be hard. I know I'm gonna face adversity. But I know that you're with me. I know that you're in me. I know that you love me. Would you strengthen me on the inside? And then, we don't have time for this, but community, he's held in community, right? There's thick relationships of comfort, And challenge around him. Paul says, all the afflictions I've experienced, God has allowed me to experience so that I can comfort you in your affliction. That's 2 Corinthians 1. We need that kind of community if we're going to endure hardship. Now, my time is up, but I I, want to just lead us into communion. And I want us to just be reminded that what sometimes seems abnormal, because we live in a world that is constantly inverting us, but, that, but we have this upside-down kingdom. And what seems normal is abnormal. What seems abnormal is normal. And this is sanity, what Jesus is giving here, what Paul is giving us here. And what we need more than anything else in this moment, we, we need the presence and power of Jesus, and that's what we celebrate each week in communion, right? The good news that what we can't do in our own strength, Jesus has done for us. What we can't do with our own wisdom, our own power, we can't strategize our way into dealing with this kind of hardship and adversity, Jesus has done for us. Jesus is the only man who ever lived who didn't experience a failure of nerve or a failure of heart. Matter of fact, every time Jesus had the opportunity to run away, he opens up his palms before the Father on his face in tears, and he says, not my will, but your will be done. He goes to the cross Enduring its shame, he fixes his eyes on his goal. He never loses heart. He dies on the cross for our sins. He rises from the dead, promising us new life, breaking into the world, if we will simply turn away from trusting in ourselves and turn to trust in him. And then he gives this beautiful, beautiful promise. In John 16, he says, I've told you these things so that in me, in the midst of all this suffering, it's what he just spent the last couple chapters talking about John 14 to 16. So that in me, You'll have shalom. You will have suffering in this world. It is a promise, Jesus says. But be courageous. Why? I have conquered the world. That is our hope. That's what we celebrate in communion each week, that Jesus has overcome the world. And this is the work that he's called us to in the world, to be people who've experienced that kind of healing presence and who offer that to the world as a gift. I'll just leave you with a quote. Again, I want to bring us back to the beginning from Willie Jennings. It's amazing when uh, just reading through and working through the book of Acts with a commentary written by an African-American scholar and theologian. If you don't know this a uh, little pastor secret, most commentaries are written by white Europeans. Uh, and so Willie Jennings, who's an African-American scholar, has written one of the best commentaries out there on uh, Acts. And here's what he has to say, and I think it's just really beautiful, so I just want to end with this. And I think it really frames up how we, how we think about this moment and our, the opportunity that God's placed in front of us. He says, we who follow Jesus are working in wounds, working with wounds, and working through wounds. The shared work of disciples in strengthening and encouraging others can make the pain productive, not because we ignore the wounds, but rather we come to see them in their true light. These are the wounds of Christ that we share for his sake. These are the marks of rejection and shame carried for the sake of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage, which is so challenging and so encouraging. God, we, we do live in a broken world. We do experience hardship from the very big to the very small, and mu- much of that we carry internally, and nobody knows about it except for us. And God, you see it. You know it, and God, you, you have redeemed it. And so, God, I pray that we would be able to just experience healing as we really press into you, as we seek to become resilient disciples who experience in our suffering, the suffering of Christ himself. And as we find comfort from our savior, we find comfort from the saints who've gone before us. God, would you just steal us? Would you strengthen us? Would you encourage us so that we can move out into the world, not as anxious and fragile and reactive, but as joyful and loving and kind and gentle and patient and long-suffering? The fruit of the spirit, God, that is what we wanna see in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our families, with our kids, and out in our world. So God, would you make us that kind of people? We desperately need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.